and welcome to episode 14 of Elite Team Leadership Podcast. Today's special guest is Dr. David Shilbury, who I was super excited to catch up with because David has been a professor of sport management at Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia for over 25 years. And he was one of the catalysts behind the course and for what it is today, making a massive sporting industry across Australia with hundreds of jobs that he helped create through his university degree of sports management deacon there. So I got to catch up with him down there in Burwood, east of Melbourne just there, and it's great to sit in his office and really catch up with him because I got my Bachelor of Commerce majoring in sport management there um, a number of years ago, and it's great to do a full circle a few years later and really go back and revisit that with him, how the course came out and how he drove and led um, as a professor of sport management, as the head of marketing management there at Deakin as well, and really uh, creating an environment where students can really flourish and create a life around sport, which they love, which was super exciting to me. And I think you guys will get a lot out of this, no matter whether you're creating a business and wanting to take it to a new level, whether you're an athlete and really looking at this industry and how it all works. This is an episode for you, and this is really some cool stuff in here catching up with David. So sit back, guys, and as always, remember to you know grab someone else who would love this and pass it on because we you know we keep it free and we keep this as high quality as possible for you guys to get a lot out of it. So really enjoy and listen to Dr. David Shilbury talking about sports management, talking about how he did it and passing on on to us. So enjoy. Hello and welcome to Elite Team Leadership. Today I'm super excited um, to have David Shilbury here with me, um, who is a professor of sports management at Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia, and also an associate dean of the school as well. Now, David, I believe, also was Australia's first professor in sport management. You were also head of sport management and marketing between 2002 to 2007, and you're the foundation chair of sport management as well, I believe, as well, David. So welcome. Thanks, James. It's good to be here. Fantastic. So I guess I'd like to start with everyone on this show, David, is a bit of a background about yourself and where you came from and, and how you got to where you are now. So if you sort of take us and the listeners through, that'd be fantastic. Sure. Look, James, it's a, it, in some ways it's an interesting story and it, it kind of matches or mirrors or reflects the evolution of the sport industry. Yes. When I left high school um, in 1975 or whatever it was, there was no such thing as a sport industry. Yes. Or we really didn't understand what it was, and there was certainly no such thing as sport management in terms of how we study it today. Yes. The closest that we got at that time, as, as I was to discover a few, a few years later, was in courses in recreation and leisure management. Yes. And that, they were in existence at uh, what was the old Mount Gravatt Institute in uh, Queensland, and at, the, at what's now Edith Cowan University in Western Australia, or it was the the WA College of Advanced Education then. Yes. So in, in, in cutting sort of through the story a bit, I found my way into uh, a, a Bachelor of Applied Science in Recreation yes. at the Netherlands campus of the WA College Yes. after having done a diploma of teaching. Uh, and that was really this turning point where I was able to start to focus on recreation, leisure and sport as an industry. 
What followed in Australia after that through the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, of course, was a quite a rapid transition from volunteer, amateur-driven sport to a sector that started to professionalise. And the very first real, if I can put it that way, sport management job I had was in the mid-1980s. Um, that was after almost having completed those leisure studies part-time, was at the West Australian Cricket Association. Yes. But I was actually employed by the Australian Cricket Board to implement Australia's first national modified rules program, which we know as Kanga Cricket. Yeah. So I was one of the first group of people that was employed to do that. And at the same time, cricket in West Australia was going through a sort of a metamorphosis in that the Wacker Ground was knocked down, rebuilt with a Brindaville stand, and staff were being employed every day, but no one quite knew what and why they were doing things. Yeah. And that's the environment I lived in in the, that, those first few years was... In a sport development sense, because I had a strong coaching background, involvement in cricket, a level three coach, did all those sorts of things. Um, I worked with the director of coaching and development office and, and we set about putting in place um, the genesis of strategies that you'll see in a more sophisticated way today mm-hmm. in thinking through how, you, how, how kids come into the game, how they progress, through the pathways in the game and then up to high levels and either settle at levels that they're comfortable with or onto elite levels of sport. So that was very much my grounding um, background in cricket, volunteer, coaching, academic studies that were evolving or in a field that was evolving. Um, So I had some years in the industry, did include a a short time at the West Australian Department of Sport and Recreation as well. Um, then into cricket and then um, I left cricket and went into local government for a little while to work as a recreation leisure officer and that's not insignificant because local government of course is the biggest provider of sport and recreation facilities across the country yeah Um, but I only stayed there about a year before I went chose to go to the US to do my masters at the University of Massachusetts in uh, a master of sport management how many years were you there for I was there for a year yep um, and of course the US is a long way in front of where we were at the time yep. professional sport was ingrained in their society it's much more commercialised and all of those uh, sport marketing components were something that I wanted to learn about and more importantly the US sports system is entirely different yeah. to Australia's, to England to most of Europeans because it's all education based in the education system so that for me that was important to see another system yep. and and work from there. So that Masters was pretty much the turning point. The truth was I spent every cent I had on that year yeah. and yeah. came back with nothing. Was that to cover the course fees over in the States? Some course fees. I got some relief for the course fees as well, um, but just living yeah. and, and also took the chance to do whatever I could do. Um, so I played golf yep. all over the place. Yeah. Um, I went learnt to ski, not very well, <laughs> but I did it. Yeah, I'm a terrible skier too. <laughs> And, and I got tickets to the US Open, yes. which was in Bro- uh, Brookline, Massachusetts that year, in Boston, which is where I was spending a lot of time. Sampras would have been rolling around in those days, was he? Well, this is the golf. Oh, golf, sorry. Uh, Kurt, yeah, Curtis Strange yep. uh, won in an 18-hole playoff over Nick Faldo on day five. So I did all of these things. So it was kind of a working holiday study, but I came back with a degree in sport management, and nobody knew what, knew what that was back yeah. in, it was in Perth at this time. Yep. And nobody knew what to do with me. So you came. So that was in the early nineties, was it? When you were in Massachusetts, or? I arrived. I finished in nineteen eighty eight. Yep. In New Mass, so I was back 
in West Australia in 1989 and I yep. worked in golf for a year as yep. their development officer. Yes. And then you decided, obviously, during the 90s, you were obviously one of the pioneers of the sport management um, course, I guess, taking place, obviously, at Deakin University. How did you get to that point where you thought this is going to be a course that's, you know, hundreds and thousands of kids are going to line yep. up to, you know, kill to get into? This is also another good story. I won't go into all the detail, but in 19, late 1989, there was an ad placed in the Australian and one of the national papers for a senior lecturer in sport management to to run a new Bachelor of Business Sport Management program at what was then Victoria College. Yes. Victoria College is now part of the, the, the new Deacon. I knew that the minute that I saw the title of the program and the course structure that this was a winner. Yeah. And that was based on my experience in Massachusetts. Yeah. The reason why I went to University of Massachusetts because it offered a degree in sport management, not sport administration. Yeah. A minor difference, but nonetheless, um, significant in the managerial um, context of where we're going to evolve as a sport industry. Uh, so I applied for that job yes. and, and I got it, yep. obviously, and yep. I've been here ever since. Yeah, absolutely. So just talk to me about today's in terms of your courses now with sport management and, and, and what sort of new things are coming up in 2015 compared to when you started 20 years ago or so with the course. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting question. Um, our course has changed, obviously, since then. We've also got a complete Master of Business Sport Management, which is like an MBA in Sport Management, which we didn't have in those early days. We also have a Bachelor of Sport Development, yes. which, which we share with our friends in Exercise and Sport Science. It's got a coaching participation focus. We also have a Bachelor of Business Sport Management combined with a Bachelor of Exercise and Sport Science. Mm. So we've got a full suite of... Uh, program offering now that we didn't have when we first started. Yeah. When we first started, it was a small elite group of about 30 that we took into the course. Yes. These days, we're taking about 60 to 70 or 80 into the Bachelor of Business Sport Management. Mm -hmm. There's another 50 in the Bachelor of Sport Development and about another 50 or 60 in the combined degree. So our numbers have increased a lot. Yes. So we're, we're producing a lot more graduates for the sports sector than, of course, we were back in the early 1990s when we first started. Yes. And added to that, we have got a lot more competitors. Yeah. So locally, there's La Trobe and Victoria University and others that are doing these sorts of courses, uh, and right around the country. Mm. So it's a completely yeah. different landscape than when we first started. Yeah. And the one significant difference 25 years later compared to when we started, we didn't have any resources. Mm. There were no textbooks, there were hardly any articles written in the area. Yeah. Um, today, we've got textbooks flowing throughout the world. Yep. Staff here at Deakin and I have written a number of these books. We've got a number of journals as outlets for our research. Some of us are running those journals and we've got resources for students and teaching that we didn't have in the first five years. Mm. Um, a fully developed, mature sort of field yeah. uh, as it stands now. I'd just like to point out too for the folks listening, I actually undertook this course between 2007 and 2009 which was brilliant. Actually, I was living on here on campus and I attended this course. So I know firsthand uh, what a great course it is and what a, you, know, um, you know, how you know, exciting the course was. And I remember at the time, we had, we had large numbers um, running the course and um, it was a huge buzz when I was here, sport management. There was, I you know, made friends for life, I guess, in a way through that course. Um, very, people were going on to do great things in different sporting areas. 
Um, I actually want to go back to with your America comparison. I'd love to just touch on that between their sporting system and ours and, and the strengths and weaknesses you see of both. Well, and, and that's a good way to put it. There are strengths and weaknesses of both systems. Um, the Australian sports system is fabulous in the sense that it's grounded in community life and it's reliant on people within communities thinking that they want to form sporting clubs for their kids to play or whatever and just because sport's a good thing to play. But it's reliant on volunteers and it can be a bit haphazard in terms of the quality of the sport experience as a consequence of that. Mm. Notwithstanding that, people who get involved in sport, because we have so many different clubs and levels and grades, people can find a level commensurate with their ability. Mm. Whereas in the US, typically what happens is once you've left the education system, that's the end of your sport sports participation unless you're an elite player that's going to go on and play major league baseball or the minor leagues to get there or the NBA it's very difficult to be involved in what you might call semi-competitive sport like we would mm. see it club cricket you know club basketball yep. um, squash or whatever the sport happens to be so the, the community focus of the way our club-based system operates is a, in my view a huge advantage yep and allows people to play and participate and all of the health health benefits that go with that. Whereas in the US, once you're done with university, you're pretty much done with sport. Yeah. Unless you played a golf club, yeah. a country club or a yeah. tennis club, some of these individual sports which are a bit more recreation, you know, you can do in a leisure sense. But to play baseball, softball, basketball, it's tough. Yeah. Or tougher. I guess in Australia we sort of um, can't imagine it being that because so many of us, you know, to this day, no matter what age you are, playing team sport. Um, I'd love to actually talk too about the shift in um, education, being, whether it's in terms of your course as well, from being uh, completely live and in that sort of your lecture theatre to online as well. Mm. How's that affecting um, a university as big as Deakin? And, 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 and do you guys offer online material? Obviously, when I did the course, we had everything was you know, recorded and you could yep. listen back. And what's, What sort of change over the last sort of 10 years in particular? Um, look, the first point to be made about that is that the university is very much uh, um, positioning itself in the digital world. Yeah. So our whole strategy at the university is about connectedness and being global. Yeah. And that means that students need to learn how to learn online. Mm. So it in, in, impacts all of us. We still have lots of students on campus and in the classroom, but we also have lots of students in in. in either learning in blended modes, that is some on campus, some off, off and online, and some solely online. Mm. In sport management, um, we do as well. The Master of Business Sport Management has a large online contingent. Yeah. About It varies from year to year, but let's say on any, any given intake, it can be a half or up to two-thirds of the students are online yeah. and the others are on campus. Yeah. And then some who choose to be on campus make decisions about consuming online because of work commitments and other things that might yes. um, prevent them from getting from, from the city or wherever out to Burwood, which on Burwood Highway can be, can be fun <laughs> can sometimes. Can be a bit of a nightmare. <laughs> Absolutely. So, and the same at the undergraduate level, we do have an online presence, although it's smaller because the undergraduates tend to want to be here on campus rather than study online. But at the master's level, it's much stronger. Yeah. So we have a very strong online presence and our staff have had to grapple with the challenge of, of learning how to teach in the online environment and what that means and using all the, the, the resources, Twitter feeds and uh, social media and all these sorts of things that are embedded in 
what's called Cloud Deacon, the, the online pl- uh, learning platform. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess with yourself, what, what did you do? You prefer having students? In, I I know you don't do this pretty much as done in the past, but in terms of speaking with students, do you do enjoy that more, or do you like this whole you know digital age and and online and having that material at the fingertips and all this? So typically, what you find in the, in in the university is that a bit of a divide. The, the sort of older generation, of which includes me, uh, are more traditionalists and prefer the what you might call the regular classroom teaching. Yep. The younger folk just take this as a given, mm-hmm. and they just know what to do and they know how to do it. Yeah, and it's like, you know, to them it's, it's just a fish jumping into the pool. You know, second nature. Yeah, second thing. nature. Yeah, that's interesting. And I just want to, um, I sort of actually want to talk about also. I sort of had a couple of points. So I want to talk about students who are looking going into university and the sort of difference between UC with students who finish a course and students who either drop out or don't undertake a course at all in terms of you know, 10, 20 years down the track because you would attract sort of track these students and their progress. You, obviously, students who stay in university get a degree are doing a lot better in the workforce and, and creating businesses and all those sorts of things. Look, generally, um, we, it's, we're not in a position to track it absolutely in terms of you know, who's done what, but we certainly have got a pretty good sense through our LinkedIn site which captures lots, lots of 600 of our graduates are on that site yep. and so we know kind of know what they're doing Yes. Um, and some of our graduates are doing fabulous things all over the world mm-hmm. different sorts of jobs, different sorts of sports and so forth but in general, in a general sense the research will tell you that university graduates tend to have higher paid jobs in, in more advanced careers than those that don't I don't expect that would be any different in, in our field than than most other fields. Yeah. What's been really interesting is how quickly the Victorian sports industry took to our graduates back in in the early 1990s. Yes. You could have expected that there might have been some reticence, and there was. You know, the students had to deal with pockets of resistance along the way, but those key influential folks in the sports business took to our graduates pretty quickly, and, and some of them just got soaked up straight away. Yeah. It's interesting, like I even look at AFL as a good example, probably about from when you started the course back in the early 90s, like the difference between AFL in the early 90s to where it is today is probably exactly the same difference between, yep. sport, it's just a good representation probably of sport management and it business. Is. It is, and we've moved from that sort of old school volunteer, mm. um, uh, what's the right word, um, passion to be involved, yep. to yes we're still and we're never going to escape this because this is a feature of the sport business. People are involved because they're passionate about their club. Yes. And that leads can lead to what you might call non-traditional type decision-making. Yes. Where it's different when you're working in Coca-Cola making objective, independent decisions. A lot of people who are good at doing that in that environment, you bring them into the sports environment as a, as a director or as a CEO, certainly 15 years ago, completely lose any sense of objectivity and and looking for the evidence to help support their decisions. It's all about what their familiarity with sport, what they know about sport, and what they know should be fixed straight away. Very much a fan mentality. Yes, yes. And that's one of the reasons why we have this course, is to teach students to be objective, independent thinkers in an environment that's highly emotionally charged and how to resist that and be aware of their own um, fan characteristics in that sort of environment so that they can... Um, act as a rational manager 
instead of get soaked up in the emotion. If you if you had to narrow it down to a couple of key points on actually how you do that, so if you, I'm sure that's probably a similar thing for anyone in the corporate world, not um, getting blinded by their passion for what they're doing. What sort of things do you sort of teach the students these days to look at objectively and make a, a educated um, decision on what well, they're trying to do? Yeah, the first thing is about awareness. Yep. The first thing the students need to know or be aware of is that their behaviour is likely to be impacted by, by the emotional setting in which they're working. Yes. And if they've got a connection to it, you know, if I'm a Collingwood supporter and I'm the CEO of Collingwood Footy Club and you think, look at Eddie Maguire, yeah. you know, there, there are obvious pitfalls that come with that. Yeah. But so I have to be aware of that and we have to teach students to be aware of that. So yeah. that's the first thing you've yeah. got, you know, prior to these courses, folks weren't aware of these things. Mm. Never thought about it. Because it's people's leisure. You're meant to be passionate about it. You weren't meant to be rational. Yep. And they were in days when it was very much an amateur voluntary driven system. There was less money involved. People's careers weren't as severely impacted as they are now because there's a lot of money to get the next contract and to keep playing and all those sorts of things. Yep. So we've got, a lot, got to be a lot more careful about how we do things. Mm. And by and large, we are. Yep. But, we, but there are is and there will always be evidence of that sort of fandom um, irrationality evident in managerial decision making or boards of directors yeah because not all of them are particularly our directors and we've arrived at a really interesting situation many of our paid staff now are far more qualified than the people that get appointed to directorships of footy clubs and various national sporting bodies state sporting bodies not in the sense that you know some of the people that are appointed as directors are highly qualified people in their own right, yep. but they haven't been exposed to the what to what's involved in understanding the sport industry. Mm. They might know their industry in banking, whatever it is, yeah. but they don't necessarily know the sport industry. Yeah. Whereas the people we've been producing over the years, they do know the sport industry. Yes. So we've got a bit of a, a tension and imbalance there. With um, just going back to that AFL example. What do you think sort of were the key things that made it explode into a professional environment making you know, making a million dollar industry? What, what were the key things were in marketing? What, what sport marketing? What, what happened during that time, do you think? Oh, it's, as, uh, as just a combination of a lot of things? Uh, it wasn't by accident, that's for sure. But the nationalising of the game and opening up a bigger market, and that is instead of just Victoria, the all of, all of Australia is the you know prime reason for that yeah I mean you just unlocked markets that were that hadn't been unlocked in a coordinated way before you you had the West Australian Football League and South Australia but national product national TV equals money yes uh, most important sport in the country the most powerful sport in the country most interest in the yes. in terms of in winter yes you've got the recipe there for a fabulous product yes you know, so along the way there was grand rationalisation and a whole raft of other drafts and salary caps equalisation programs designed to enhance uncertainty of outcome. Yes. Get it on TV. Yep. And it's a it's a winter it's saturated, mm. particularly here in Melbourne. It's what we live with. Yeah. And now most of the country does as well. And if you had, is there a number of obviously? Um former students have gone on working in clubs now. I've got a couple of friends yeah. who are in the industries now. What, um, out of all the students who sort of finished, have you seen any of who have hit really big roles you know of or across the industry in oh, sport? Oh, or? absolutely. We've got, um, from our very first group, in not graduated in the BBS 
Sport Management 1992, is now the Vice President of Activation and Partnerships at the Orlando Magic Basketball Club in, yeah. in Orlando. Wow, yeah. Uh, yeah. We've got graduates who are the CEO of Netball Australia, mm. IMG Australasia, mm. Hockey Victoria, Bowls Australia. Yeah. I mean, the, the list goes on that we've got graduates doing lots of those things. Uh, and some of them, interesting, one of the interesting that some of them have done is, is get involved with the Sydney Olympics and those sorts of events and followed, as event people do, yes. you know, the Olympic to Olympic type movement or Commonwealth Games to Commonwealth Games as event managers working on, yeah. you know, they do that for a while and they come back and settle down in life. <laughs> you, you can't do that forever, yes, but what yes. the experience you pick up on yes. along the way, I know we've got one girl who's now working at Cricket Australia, one of her early graduates has done all of that, is back in here and working in events at Cricket Australia. Do you have any, do you have any personal goals that you think, oh, I'd love to get a shoot in one day into this position one day, or do you have anything like that for oh, yourself? We, or? Look, we've got one, one of our, um, Graduates is CEO of uh, Greater Western Sydney. Yeah. Um, obviously, what I'd like to see is increasingly a number of our graduates in CEOs of those high-profile yep. AFL clubs. Yep. Um, one day an AFL um, CEO, mm. and all and, and Cricket Australia as well. Mm. Um, we've you know we've got that in some sports already, but they're they're obviously the top yeah. top sports. Well, I guess when you think about it, probably it'll probably start to happen all. The, uh, about now because you started 20 years ago so those guys are probably in the 40s now just yep. get to that age where they're primed to yep. step into those big roles yeah absolutely there's a lot of them that have had a good experience now really pushing upwards into those sorts of roles yeah fantastic um it's got a few more questions here for you david we're just sort of finishing up um so i don't want to i know your time is very valuable and i'm um, doing lovely through here um Going forward, sport business into the future, where do you see it going for the next sort of in 10 years from now? What do you see the big changes are? Uh, obviously, digital is one, but what sort of other things are you sort of preparing for or thinking about as a, as a thinker of the, of the Well, di digital is certainly one from a com uh, you know, broadcasting commercial point of view, and, and it's hard to know where that will stop because you'd sense the whole digital technology thing is just going to keep going. Yep. So, so that's with us for a long time, and it's... The pace of change just seems to get more rapid as as we get get into it. I think the other one is is in the is in the sport governance space. We really do need to sort out our, our governance arrangements in sport. And coming back to the comments I made before, we need to understand what it is what it means to be a leader as a director. Yes. And how you manage that through national sport organisations, whether we can continue to retain this duplication of national and state bodies and if so how are we going to as as um, from a governance perspective ensure they work collaboratively that's a challenge for the next decade some cases some sports will move to a unitary model yes. others will adopt other uh, collaborative approaches that will allow them to get around that but there's a lot of duplication that's built into that system that can be taken out of the system and redirected into other areas of the business yeah. and I think the next 10 years is going to see a lot of that shake itself out in 10 years' time, what sports do you see really rising up and really from today to then or say 20 years or even further down the track, what sports do you see really growing in Australia in particular and even worldwide? What sports do you... That's a really good question. Um, the thing about sport is that it, 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 the really successful sports are ingrained in a national psyche. Yeah. So to that extent, AFL 
the Indigenous Football Code and Cricket, Rugby League are always going to dominate the landscape here in this country. Netball has made rapid gains in the last 10 years and they've done a fantastic job in what they've been able to position their sport and that will continue. Yeah. Um, basketball has had its ups and downs, it's struggling a bit in terms of you know, capturing the imagination of the public. It's, got a, it's clearly got an, a market yep. but it's not as big as it might have hoped um, given where they were at some point. The general view is that, that some of the individualised sports might might take a hold. Yeah. You, know, you think about the Winter Olympics and some of the, 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 the those um, um, events, the half pikes and whatever they are. Yes. The skateboarding type thing, the action sports. There is a sense that some of those individual sports could do quite well in the next decade or so. Yes. Because they come without the demands and constraints of Saturday afternoon competition or at two o'clock and you've got to be there because you've got 18 other blokes or 10 other women waiting for you to play, all those sorts of things. So there's pressure on time and the, 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 the sort of routine that goes with organised sport. Yes. So sports are going to need to be thinking about their game formats and how they are able to package up and provide these sorts of things to still provide involvement in the sport but it may not always actually be the full five hour mm. format or whatever it happens to be it's interesting to say that because even someone like myself I like football as well but I don't play football anymore simply because I work past six o'clock now I don't you know, finish in time sort of thing yeah, anymore. Yeah. and I, I actually take up running as a sport I run marathons now just because I do it at 6am you do it for an hour and you're back at home yeah and you do it that's right you do it when it works for you yeah uh, so that there is a, a I think a, a view that this this individualised nature of sport participation—it may not always be sport, yeah. but some sort of participation, running marathons or whatever—is going to take a greater hold. Yeah. Cycling is another. Yeah. Um, if you had to give um, you know people in the twenties or even thirties um, some advice on you know, sport and business, like three key pieces of advice to be successful in sport and business, yep. what would they be? Get involved with the sports club. Yep. as a volunteer yeah. get involved with coaching get involved as an administrator whatever get involved with a sports club understand the culture of sport yep. that's the first thing the second thing is do our degree <laughs> absolutely that, you know, what's changed by doing our degree is in the past people would be employed in the sports industry and take and still happens now take 12 to 24 months to learn about the sport industry yeah. whereas we like to think our graduates have, you know, have accept, what the younger ones have got to learn how to how to work. Yes. The master students have learnt that, and they so they can go straight in the industry, and and they're not going to take twelve to twenty four months to learn how what, about the sport industry. They'll know it. Yeah. And so it's they can get straight into it and start start doing things. So, be you know, educate yourself, um, learn about the sport industry, uh, about fundamentals of business understand where the differences are in relation to sport, this emotion, passion, um, the sport product, something that we can play. You can't play Coca-Cola, but you can play sport. That has implications for how we manage our sport system. And then I guess the third thing is even if you study, you know, learning's a lifelong exercise. Absolutely. You just don't stop learning. So you need to find ways to engage with either further study or professional development courses or other outlets mm -hmm. to keep you engaged with trends and yes. and thinking and keep ahead of the wave. 
in across the across the globe, I guess, who are the uh, couple of people you sort of maybe idol or, or mentor off or look to and think, um, you know, yeah, I'd like to be like them in, in years to come from yourself. Who do you sort of over the years looked at and thought those guys are leading the way and I really um, I, I, you know, idolise them in a way? Yeah, look, there's some professors, uh, experienced professors in North America who have led the way in our field. Um, some of them are quite sort of, you know, elderly now. Uh, and they've certainly shaped and helped me with my thinking and what you need to do as an academic, yes. scholarship, um, education, curriculum, all those sorts of things. So um, clearly there's been some of those, particularly in North America. Yes. And I'm fortunate when I get back to North America every year and usually see one, if not more of them, yeah. uh, on a regular basis. Um, but And that's another thing, you Coming back to the former question, you've got to stay connected. You stay connected by going to conferences and just talking to people and doing all those sorts of things. Um, so that North America has been an important outlet for me yeah. um, to 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 do that. Yeah, locally, there's been folks here at this university or what Victoria College that have helped shape me um, to do what I do, and I still catch up with them from time to time and um, say, "Look, well, this is what's happening." And, You've always got to have mentors and people that you can learn from. Absolutely. In one of the final questions, um, if you had to um, advise three books uh, for people to read, maybe one of your own, I think you've <laughs> written about 11 or been a part of about 11 I read, um, what would three you'd recommend um, to really grasp a hold of the industry and just education in general and, and taking yourself to the next level? In terms yeah, that's of, a good question. Uh, look, We've got a text called Sport Management in Australia and that's an overview of how sport's organised and delivered in this country. That's the sort of thing that's, that we believe separates our students is that they study the sport industry, they get some sense of how it's organised, delivered, the volunteer nature, of the sort of delegate system of, of management that we've had over the years. Um, that's an important book and mm. to read and obviously it's part of our course. Yeah. The second book would be, and there are, there are a number of these now, uh, in the area of sport marketing. Yep. We've obviously got one called Strategic Sport Marketing. A new edition of that will come out next year sometime. But there are a dozen or more of sport marketing texts mm. around the world, most of them in North America. Uh, any one of those is something that folks should read because they all will deal with the special features of sport and explain to students what, what distinguishes sport marketing yep. from marketing washing machines or fridges or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's no, a... I, sorry, the third one would be in the, in the governance, yeah. sport governance domain. Yep. Learn about sport governance and, and the responsibility of directors for oversight of, of sport organisations. Fantastic. We've got a bit of reading to do. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. Uh, fantastic. Well, Dave, we're going to wrap it up there. I really appreciate your time and I actually want to acknowledge you for coming on here and really... Um, it gives you time for half an hour or so to chat about what you've done and what you're doing and, and great advice. I'm sure a lot of people listen to this uh, and get a lot out of it. So thank you very much um, and we'll have to catch up again soon. Look forward to it, James. Thank you.